with you. Grab a pew Bible. We'll be on page 873. And uh, we're going to start with a story. This is a story from uh, 2014. The story of Justine Sacco. She is the senior director of uh, corporate communications at the company AIC. She is traveling. She's on vacation. She's traveling to South Africa to visit family. And as she makes each stop on the way, which there's a lot of stops on the way to South Africa, she uh, gets Wi-Fi and she tweets to her 170 Twitter followers. She lands in JFK and she tweets, hey, weird German dude, you're in first class. It's 2014, get some deodorant. She makes it to Heathrow in London and she says, chili, cucumber sandwiches, bad teeth, back in London. And as she's getting ready to board the plane for Cape Town, South Africa, she says, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. She gets up into the plane. She has no internet connection. And over the next 11 hours, as she flies to South Africa, her tweet gets picked up by a gossip blogger and becomes the number one trending topic in Twitter. The hashtag, has Justine landed yet, is created. And when she lands and gets back into cell reception, her phone is inundated with notifications from Twitter, text messages from friends and family. Are you all right? I'm so sorry this has happened to you. She has no idea what has gone on over the course of her flight. Her family in Africa is humiliated. She is immediately fired from her job. And the employees at the hotel she's staying at in Africa refuse to come to work because she's staying there. This is an example of what's been dubbed cancel culture. As a society, we have become incredibly aware of injustice, or at least the, what our society considers to be injustice, and we've become very vocal and very adamant that these injustices need to be accounted for. Justine claims that her text was sarcastic, her, her Twitter or her tweet was sarcastic, and that she was trying to draw attention to the fact that um, AIDS disproportionately affects black Africans. But the damage was done. The world had decided she deserved to be canceled, and her life was ruined because of this indiscretion. And we have this overwhelming, almost sadistic sense of justice. And this justice that we have that creates cancel culture is, is not just you, this right needs to be wronged, but you need to pay for what you've done. We, we turn justice into vengeance. We want to make you suffer for this thing that you have committed. Jesus is going to talk about forgiveness this morning and He's going to picture forgiveness for the follower of Jesus as radically different than the way the world understands forgiveness. And I, I've always thought this was interesting. As a younger person, I, I thought this seemed very easy. Just, you know, you just forgive people. Somebody does something, you just forgive them. And then I got older, and then people started to hurt me. And then I began to realize, oh, yeah, it's not, it's not that easy. It's, it's really hard to forgive people. This is something that we tend to struggle with. 
And so this is a really important thing for us to wrestle with this morning because unforgiveness ends up being a very major problem in our hearts. Verse 21, Jesus has just got done talking about this thing that we call church discipline. And then Peter approaches him and asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. See, what's happening here is the rabbis of the day would have said that you need to forgive someone three times per an offense. That's, that's an appropriate amount of forgiveness. And so Peter's like shooting for the moon. He's gonna like win extra points, be the best of the class. He's gonna be, Jesus, should I forgive my brother seven times? It's the Hebrew number of completion or perfection. And he, he's thinking like, I'm gonna just win points. And Jesus is like, no, Peter, 70 times seven. So that would be 490 times. But there's an interesting thing about this verse, and I, this is kind of a geeky Bible thing, but we're going to talk about it because I think it's awesome. There's, your, your Bible might say 70 times seven, and it might have a note that says, or 77, or maybe your Bible actually translates it 77 there's a couple different ways to work with this Greek phrase. It could mean 70 times seven or it could mean 77. I actually think it's more accurate as 77 and here's why. There's one other time in the Hebrew Bible that the word seven and the word 77 go together. And I want you to turn there. It's Genesis chapter four. Genesis chapter four is the story of Cain and Abel. If you're not familiar, Cain and Abel are Adam and Eve's children. They're, uh, they're two sons, and they grow up, and they both offer sacrifices to God. And for some reason, God accepts Abel's sacrifice and doesn't accept Cain's sacrifice. And so Cain gets angry, and Cain murders his brother Abel. God calls him out on it and banishes him from his family. And Cain says that my punishment in verse 13 of Genesis chapter four, my punishment is too great to bear since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord replied to him, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. So God says, you know what, Cain? I'm gonna offer you mercy in the midst of your crime. I'm gonna make it so that if anybody hurts you, they will owe me seven times what they did to you. And so Cain goes off and he founds a city and the next few verses talk about seven generations of his ancestors. And then we get to this man named Lamech. Lamech is an interesting character. Lamech sings a song. In verse 23, Lamech has two wives, so he sings to both of his wives. He says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, pay attention to my words, for I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech it will be 77 times. See, Lamech is bragging that he is so much better, he is so much stronger, he is so much more worthy than his ancestor Cain that if anybody comes after him, they will bear 77 times the vengeance. Lamech becomes this poster child in the Old Testament for the culture of vengeance. We don't, we don't just want to seek justice, we want 
to make them pay. Apparently, this young man approached Lamech, and they got into a fist fight, and Lamech killed him, and he's bragging about it. Cain will be avenged seven times. Lamech will be avenged 77 times. So then we go back to Jesus and his disciples, a group of people who would have soaked themselves in the Old Testament scriptures their whole life. And Jesus says, no, Peter, not seven times, 77 times. And immediately these men would have thought about Lamech and how Lamech had set a culture of vengeance in his city. And Jesus is standing up and saying, the kingdom of God is going to be exactly the opposite of that. And then he's going to tell a story to illustrate it. But before we get into the story, I want, to, I want to talk a little bit about what forgiveness is not. Because forgiveness is not understood well often in the church. A lot of harm has been wrought over the years by misapplying Jesus' words on forgiveness. Um, these uh, items come from Tim Mackey. And he says that, first of all, forgiveness is not ignoring or forgetting If you remember last week, we talked about when somebody sins, you go to them. If somebody hurts you, you don't just ignore it. You don't just forget about it. We talked about how there's a lot of things you just, you know, he got up on the wrong side of the bed, he's grumpy, love covers a multitude of sins, and that's true. But when things are serious, when someone has really hurt you, the the forgiving thing is not to just let it go, not to ignore it. Jesus says, no, you go to them. You go to them to fix it. Forgiveness is not ignoring or forgetting Forgiveness is not also condoning or excusing by by seeing someone's bad actions and sin and saying, no, it's okay, it doesn't matter, it's fine. Jesus just got done saying, no, if you go to somebody and they don't respond, then you get some other people together and you go back to them because it's serious and it's wrong and it needs to be dealt with. Forgiveness doesn't mean tolerating or allowing further abuse. I don't know how many... um, terrible situations marriage partners, specifically women, have been in by being told that you're in an abusive relationship and you just need to forgive and put up with it. That's not what Jesus teaches. You you see in the previous passage, if your brother sins, you go to them, and if they don't repent, you bring a few other people in. If they don't repent, you bring the whole church in. Notice the offended party is getting more and more distance from their offender at each step. If you're in an unsafe, unhealthy relationship, the appropriate thing to do in the midst of forgiveness is to create safety and distance between you and the person who has hurt you. Forgiveness doesn't mean reconciliation or restoration. Those things are good, and Jesus would have us seek those things, but they're not always possible because it requires two people to be reconciled. Sometimes the person who has wronged you refuses to be reconciled. Sometimes the person that has hurt you has died. Reconciliation is not the same thing as forgiveness. Forgiveness is not returning back to the way things were before. Trust needs to be earned, and it doesn't automatically get bestowed when forgiveness takes place. And forgiveness is not allowing the offender to escape the consequences. If somebody wrongs you, specifically criminally, sometimes the most loving and righteous thing to do is to let the law take its course and have that person reap the consequences of their crimes. So, with that said, let's take a look at what Jesus says about forgiveness. Verse 23, 
For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything that he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Jesus is making the point that we should forgive people because God has forgiven us. And he starts off by telling this story about this king who represents God. And the truth that we need to pull out from this is that you and I, we have wronged God. We have wronged the king. We are guilty before him. We owe him something. We have sinned against him, and he will come to collect. Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin, the thing that we have earned for our sin, is death. The king comes to settle accounts, and the one servant owes him 10,000 talents. That's a meaningless number to most of us. A talent is a measure of weight. You could have copper or silver or gold talents. Most of the time, if it's not specified, it's a silver talent, so we're gonna assume they're silver talents. That's about 300 tons of silver. One talent is what an average person back then would have made in 20 years of his work life. So this man has somehow racked up 5,000 lifetimes worth of debt against his master. Jesus, at this point, he might as well have said a zillion dollars because there is no way that this guy is going to pay this debt. And so what does the king say? You owe me everything. Everything that you have belongs to me. You're gonna be sold and your wife's gonna be sold and your children's gonna be sold. And this still comes nowhere close to paying off the debt. And so the servant begs, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. This would probably have provoked a laugh as Jesus told this story because there is no way that this man is paying this back. And it is an interesting, like, how we respond to God sometimes. He, the servant doesn't say, forgive me the debt. He says, don't worry, God, I, I'll take care of it. I'll pay it back. I'll do better. I'll try harder. I'll make it up to you. How many times do we come to God in our sin and say stuff like that? You know what? I, I know I screwed up, but I'll do better next time. My, I'll just make sure my good stuff outweighs those bad things. Give me another chance. And just like in the story, it's ludicrous. You and I owe so much debt, there's no way we can pay it back. You and I are without hope if it's up to us to make things right with God. But then the master, he does something crazy in verse 27. The master of that servant had compassion and released him and forgave him the loan. He unilaterally forgives the debt. He erases it. And see, that's, that is my story. God erases my debt through Christ. He pays 
the debt himself. And the thing is, somebody is always paying for the debt. If, if John loans me $10,000 to buy a car, which he'd totally do that, no? Yeah, you would. I'm good for it. If I pay that car, pay that money back to him, I own the car, right? But if I don't pay the money back and John goes, you know what? Don't worry about it. I forgive the loan. Who paid for the car? John did, right? Somebody paid for the car. Somebody has to pay for the car. Just because John forgives the loan doesn't make the car free. It, may, it means that John says, you know what? I'm just going to pay for that myself. For the master to forgive this debt, he loses the money. He pays it himself. And Jesus pays our debt. He forgives it, but his ability to forgive it is dependent on his ability to pay for it. Jesus has no right to forgive us our our debt if he doesn't pay it on our behalf. John and I were actually speaking of cars, uh, at my house a couple weeks ago. Um, he was helping me work on my roof. And we just, we just moved in there, and I'm trying to, you know, get to know my neighbors and, and be a good witness. And our rear neighbor, who is nine months pregnant, backed into John's car and hit it. And she's all like, oh, excuse me, whose car is this? I'm so sorry I bumped into it. And I immediately went, oh, don't worry about it. It's fine. (laughs) And John said, thanks. Thanks for letting me help you get to know your neighbors. (laughs) I had no right to tell her that it was fine. It wasn't my car. It was fine. (laughs) Barely a scratch. But see, this is the place that Jesus has put himself in. He is going to pay for our debt. And he's going to forgive us of the obligation. I don't have to pay God back for my sins. I don't have to make installments. He's not going to remind me of it. If you're a Christian this morning, your sins are gone. Your debt is paid. You've been released from your guilt, from the shame that you carry, from the ultimate consequences of all the ways that you have wronged him, you have wronged yourself, you have wronged others, and you have wronged the world. All this has been taken care of in Christ. But the story doesn't end there. Verse 28, that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. Okay, so this, this man who has been forgiven 10,000 talents, a zillion dollars, an amount he could never hope to pay, he goes out and finds somebody that owes him, I don't know, about 15,000 bucks. Not nothing, but not, not as much as he was forgiven. 
smaller debt, 100 denarii, about four months' salary for an average person. And what does he do? He responds with violence. He chokes him. How many times has that been your first play in a confrontation? Just go right to the chokehold. See, he's playing right into the culture of Lamech, right? This guy hit me, so I killed him. This guy owes me money, so I'm going to choke him. Violence and retribution and vengeance. And this, this man begs him exactly the way he did to his master. Give me time and I will pay it back. But in this case, I mean, you could pay back $15,000 on a working man's salary. Sure. It might take a while. Well, you could do it. That's reasonable. But he has no, none of it. He throws him in prison. And, and because of his anger, because of his bitterness, because of his need for vengeance, he acts irrationally. Because in debtor's prison, you know how much money you make? Zero. You don't make any money in debtor's prison. So if this man has any hope of paying his debt, debtor's prison is not the place to do it. See, the vengeful servant doesn't care at this point about getting his money back. He cares about making this man pay. For the rest of your life, you're going to jail because you didn't pay your debt. It's not even about the money anymore. I just want to hurt you. The servant doesn't want justice. He wants vengeance. He wants this man to suffer. And the crazy thing is, the servant has every right to do this. Under under the system of laws at the time, He's not breaking the law. He's not doing anything wrong. There's a debt that's owed and it hasn't been paid and so you can throw him into debtor's prison. It's his right under the judicial system of the day to do it. It's legal and most people would say maybe it's the right thing to do. You know, if you don't, if you don't crack down on debtors, everybody will just rack up more debt. Debtor's prison is a deterrent for more people to go into debt. There's nothing wrong with this man's behavior. And then you bring it back to us. I wonder how many times we've heard that. How many times have we said that? You know, that there is nothing that they could do to be forgiven for what they did to me. They need to pay for their crimes. But then look at verse 31. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. You could translate the line, shouldn't you also have had mercy, as it is necessary that you have mercy. Why don't we see that when we're dealing with people? When I think about how God has forgiven me, you know, I'm a, I'm a sinner, I'm broken, but God is gracious, God understands my weaknesses, he knows my heart and my intentions, and besides, I'm the product of my family, 
my upbringing and my culture, and sin is like a soup that I fall into at birth, and Jesus graciously washes me clean. And when I wrong someone, it might, I might just have been having a bad day. I'm misunderstood. I'm a weak person. But when I am wronged by others, they are wicked. They are evil. They are monolithically vile creatures that honestly should just be put down before they do any more harm. It makes sense to me that God would forgive me because, I mean, I'm a pretty nice guy. But those people out there, they deserve everything that's coming to them. And we do this to individuals in our relationships, and we do it to groups of people. And we look out just quickly on our news feed, and we see all of the craziness that's going on in the world, and it is a outworking of vengeance. These people cannot be forgiven. These people could never change. These people have to pay for what they've done. And this is the cultural moment that we are living in. We are swimming in this culture that Lamech was instituting thousands of years ago. The master says, it was necessary for you to also forgive because I forgave you. Forgiveness is not optional for us. It flows out of who we are as Christians. If your life has been transformed by Jesus, you will be a forgiver. And if you aren't, I don't, I don't know what to say. You know, there's big questions that you could ask about this. So the, he was forgiven of all the debt, but then he got thrown into prison. Does that mean you can lose your salvation? And what does it mean to be tortured until you can pay back everything you owed? Jesus isn't putting together a whole systematic theology about salvation in this story. That's not the point. The point is to walk away asking the question, like, am I a forgiver? Am I one who understands what I have been given in Christ And am I passing that on to others? Look at verse 35. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. In the Bible, the heart is the seat of the will. In America, the heart is the seat of the emotions, right? It's where we feel happy and lovely and giddy and all of those things. But in the, in the Bible, the heart is the seat of the will. It's the place where you make decisions. Forgiveness is a choice. And Jesus says, because you know how much you've been forgiven, you choose to forgive others. N.T. Wright in his commentary on this passage says, forgiveness is like the air in your lungs. There's only room for you to inhale the next lungful when you've just breathed out the previous one. If you insist on withholding it, refusing to give one, someone the kiss of life that they may desperately need, you won't be able to take any more in yourself, and you will suffocate very quickly. Whatever the spiritual, moral, and emotional equivalent to the lungs may be, it's either open or closed. If it's open, able, and willing to forgive others, it will also be open to receiving God's love and forgiveness. But if it's locked up to the one, it will be locked up to the other. If Jesus forgives us, and we say that we are his people, we are bound up in his way of life. Klein Snodgrass, who has an awesome name, in his commentary says, when you get the gift, you get the giver. 
who will not let you go your way. Our master is a generous forgiver, and if we are going to be his people, he is going to make us and shape us into people that forgive. We're not just people that have accepted a set of ideas and decided to live a certain way. I, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about this. Uh, I was there. You may have read or seen the the thing in California where churches are not allowed to sing. That came out yesterday. I read through like this 19-page pamphlet on the state's advice to churches on how to handle COVID, and part of that was the singing thing. And I just, I just got the impression that the person that wrote it had never been inside a church in their life. <laughs> and, and they just didn't get it. And they, there were just these little cues about how they, how they talked about, you know, uh, gathering as an expression of your personal faith. And there were these weird things that were said in this, this pamphlet that just made me think, to this person, Christianity is just this, like, hobby that some people have, like fishing or baseball or you know, this is, just, this is the thing I do on Sundays. But that's, that's not the heart of the gospel. The gospel is not about, you know what, I like that thing. I'm going to go be that kind of person. It's we are people that have been recreated by Jesus, by the grace of God, to be a completely different kind of person. We have been infused with his Holy Spirit and empowered to live a life that is completely different than the world around us. And if we are Jesus' people, we will be forgivers. That doesn't mean it's always easy to forgive. The the older I get, the more I realize how hard it is. $15,000 is a lot of money. But it's nothing compared to what Christ has given me. When we allow the Holy Spirit's power into our lives we will slowly begin to be more forgiving people and that's gonna work its way out into the world that we live in and we're gonna have the opportunity to tell people why we're so different, right? Like I said, we watched Hamilton yesterday and there's this uh, scene in Hamilton where, uh, if you know the story, um, he, he has an affair and it's a secret until his political enemies find out about it, uh, at which point he decides his best move would, to, would be to get ahead of them and just publish the story of the affair in the newspaper so that his enemies don't have a chance to do it. And so his wife finds out about his affair by reading the newspaper. And it's a pretty horrific part of the play, and, and she's devastated. Her name's Eliza. And that goes on for a little while, and then um, and their marriage is just in a bad place. And then uh, later on in the play, uh, his son is killed in a duel. And Eliza lays a lot of the blame on Alexander. And as the play goes on, there's a song that's sung. As they deal with their grief, as they deal with their pain, Alexander draws closer to Christ through the witness of his believing wife. And they're walking together and the chorus behind them sings, forgiveness, can you imagine? And that's the thing, the the world looks at forgiveness and goes, can you imagine 
How in the world could she draw near to this man who has betrayed her and then has, that she feels is responsible for the death of her son and yet for some reason she finds a way to forgive him, to bring him back, to revitalize their marriage. Forgiveness, can you imagine? But see, we are people that can imagine that because that's been done to us. Christ has given forgiveness to us. And so when we, <laughs> can, we, when we can harness that power, the power of Jesus that lives inside of us, the watching world goes, what is the deal with you people? And we get to say, oh, let me tell you about my Savior. So the question for all of us is, is, who do we need to forgive? Is there somebody in your life that you are holding a grudge against, that you're, you're just kind of hoping, you know, they wouldn't die in a car accident, but maybe they'd get in a car accident. You don't want, you don't want them to be whole. You don't want them to be good. You don't want them to be free. You want them to pay just a little bit for what they've done to you. Or maybe you're in a place where you just can't, even imagine forgiving someone. What they did to me, I will never forgive them for. Maybe you're letting that bitterness take hold in your heart. Who do you need to forgive? As we sing, as we take communion, it's an opportunity for you to ask the Holy Spirit, what's going on in my heart? A lot of times we don't we don't know what's going on because we're so distracted. We don't pay attention to our thought life and our heart life. It's an opportunity to take a couple moments and say, God, what, what is holding me back from forgiving? Is there somebody in my life that I, I have a grudge against, that I hold bitterness to? Help me to let that go. Maybe that doesn't mean everything is going to be fine. Maybe that doesn't mean reconciliation. Maybe that means they still have some work to do to pay for the things that they've done. but how can I forgive them? Because Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, offered up bread and a cup, and he said, eat these in remembrance of me. This cup is my blood, this bread is my body, broken for you, poured out for you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take your place, I'm gonna pay your debt, and do this as often as you do it until I come back to get you. Jesus thought it was incredibly important to remind us of the debt that we owed and that he completely paid for it. And from that flows out this life of forgiving others. And so we've We've got a little bit of time. We've got, we've got some songs we're going to sing. Come up as you feel led. Take the communion. Spend some time working through your heart with God. Ask him to reveal things that are keeping you from being forgi for forgiving to others. Um, one of the things that we would like to encourage is uh, a posture of prayer in our services. And so we actually, um, we've, we've set up these areas up front. If you'd like to come and kneel and pray, please use this space for that. Uh, 
I'm going to invite the band back up, and we're just going to pray and uh, meditate on the sacrifice of the Lord on our behalf and let him do some work. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.